Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast, news, reviews and resources for ITAM salmon software licensing professionals. Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast. I'm Martin Thompson from the ITAM Review and this is episode 8. Uh, today I'm joined by Anya Levy from Levy Legette, Craig Garanti from Palisade Compliance, Doug Erinreich from iQuate, John Emmett from Flexoa Software and finally James Gabriel from Snow Software. And the subject we're digging into today is, uh, again, and this is another podcast around Oracle and Oracle licensing. Uh, it follows a lot of research we've done on the campaign for licensing around Oracle. And this, this uh, podcast is based on the grey zone, uh, uh, as Craig put it uh, in the podcast, around uh, Oracle negotiations. So one of the key complaints around Oracle and Oracle licensing is the vagueness or the ambiguity in contracts. And the subject of the one of the key subjects of this podcast is how you can actually negotiate that to your advantage. So, the vagueness is actually a double-edged sword for Oracle and can be used to your advantage if you know how. It's a fascinating podcast, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, it's a preview to our New York Oracle seminar, which is being held at Baruch College in New York on the 29th of January. Uh, check out the item review at www.itassetmanagement.net if you want to attend that. And um, please let us know if you want to hear any other subjects on the ITAM Review podcast. We're looking at, uh, we can, we'll continue the research around Oracle, uh, but we'll also be looking at SAP, IBM, and Microsoft, uh, as well as general SAM and ITAM topics throughout two, 2015. Also, don't forget to subscribe to iTunes or SoundCloud or the ITAM Review newsletter if you want to receive updates of future podcasts. Uh, in the meantime, over to the podcast, and this is Oracle Grey Zone. So if I could come to you, um, Anya, first of all, could you give an introduction to yourself, your company and what you do and um, and let people know about what you do in this space? Uh, yes, certainly. Um, my name is Anya Levy, L-E-V-Y, uh, and uh, the name of my company is Levy Leggett uh, LLC, and we operate as the Levy Leggett Group globally. And uh, our function primarily is um, in IT due diligence, specifically in the vendor management space practice area, and that includes uh, everything to do with the contracting process, the negotiation of contracts. Um, my personal um, specialty is software licensing in general, with um, specialties in Microsoft and Google and IBM. So actually really tier one vendors. Um, I don't get involved in the technical aspects. I used to be able to do that, um, but uh, there, there's too much morphing in licensing uh, and license models. So I simply stick to um, having uh, in our services a discovery process take place, the the ITAM process. So I'm, I'm sure you're just being modest there. I bet you're a guru, really, aren't you? I, I used to be more, and I'm just getting too old and tired for that. Uh, <laughs> I'm the one that sits in front of the vendor, and, and my company does do face-to-face -face negotiations with vendors. Uh, we don't, um, we're independent, so we don't uh, work with vendors, we're not alliance partners with them. Uh, and lately I've seen more companies uh, come up in the marketplace that are or claim to be independent, and that's excellent and uh, uh, channel for clear licensing is something that has been long needed 
um, and uh, a voice for the end user. Is It's not just me anymore, Martin, thank you. Uh, I am no longer the uh, Danya Quixote of the world. Um, <laughs> but in the 20 years that I've been in business, um, that's the, the sort of reputation that I've gotten. So I, I represent the demand side of the market. And my background is um, large finance organizations. So my last employer was J.P. Morgan uh, Chase. And um, I did for them what um, I guess our attendees at this conference do. So I had global responsibility for IT due diligence for J.P. Morgan Chase. Great, thank you. And Craig, uh, again, if I could ask the same of you, could you introduce yourselves to our podcast listeners? Sure, thank you, Martin. Uh, my name is Craig Renti. I'm the CEO for Palisade Compliance. Uh, Palisade has been in business now for three years. Uh, we are independent. We are not an Oracle uh, reseller. We are not a tool vendor. We are purely a management consulting firm. Uh, we focus only on Oracle and all of their acquisitions, and we help our clients uh, basically take back control of their Oracle relationship and contracting, uh, get into compliance, save money. Uh, we perform all types of functions, whether it's audit defense, contract negotiations, strategic planning, uh, you know, before the client gets the audit letter uh, so they can understand uh, what they need to do with their, with their Oracle contracts and licensing. My name is Gabriel. I work for Snow Software. Perfect. Thank you. And Doug, could I ask the same of you? Please introduce yourself. Yeah. Hi, this is uh, Doug Ehrenreich. I'm the VP of the uh, Americas operation for iQuate. And iQuate uh, is sort of the, the experts in, in infrastructure, data center discovery, uh, specifically where there are uh, assets deployed out within uh, Unix, Linux, Windows, and multiple virtualization technologies. And we actually will go out and discover and inventory the hardware and the software uh, and provide all of the under uh, infrastructure elements as well as the in-depth uh, measurement metrics uh, for products like Oracle uh, in the data center. Uh, as well as other software and enterprise applications. Great, thank you. And finally, um, John, could you introduce yourself and what your company does? Sure. My name is John Emmett, and I work at Flexera Software. And Flexera is a software asset management and software license optimization tool vendor. So we sell products that help our enterprise customers manage and optimize licensing for uh, their primary, well, for all their vendors, but their key vendors like Oracle, for example, where we provide specific uh, optimization solutions to help uh, our customers reduce costs for licensing and reduce license compliance risk by helping them maintain license compliance. And so Oracle is one of the, one of the key vendors that we have uh, a specific product for uh, FlexNet Manager for Oracle, and then we have you know optimization products for other other key vendors as well, from Microsoft and Adobe to IBM, um, SAP, and Symantec. And the latest offering is around here. Perfect, thank you. So um, this podcast is is focusing and and is a is a preview to our uh, Oracle seminar on the 29th of January, which is being held in um, New York City. Uh, and it's a repeat of our Oracle seminar that we held in November in London. And during that event in London, we had an interactive session 
with the delegates and we asked them for some to keep things positive and ask for some constructive recommendations about how Oracle could actually improve things so that we could relay that back to Oracle. And we've recently published that on the item review and I'll include that in the show notes so that everyone can see it. Um, but it basically sets out some positive recommendations and what I'd like, I would love to go through today from the, the experts on the call is, is what you think of those uh, recommendations and perhaps how we could um, build them into our contracts and our negotiations and our working practices with Oracle anyway. So if I cover those very quickly in, in summary, so we, for example, we've got here um, that the, the, the overwhelming majority wanted better audit communications, better communications around the audit process and just general uh, licensing updates and contract updates from Oracle. The number two was to set the scope of audits and actually define what was going to happen, how it was going to happen and what, what, the, uh, what Oracle was looking for. Um, third one was to define what was going to happen during the audit as part of the contract so that everyone was absolutely crystal clear over what was going to happen. Um, and there are a number of other recommendations. If I could come to you first, Anya, in terms of these recommendations, I mean, are these are these painfully obvious to you? Is this what you're building in as part of your negotiations with clients all, all the time anyway? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, and particularly because um, um, uh, Oracle can shoot itself in the foot with its own current audit. It's a two-way, uh, you know, it's a double-edged sword. So the uh, the end-user client doesn't know what to expect and there's a lack of communication. Uh, Oracle themselves can be tied up in a knot with a clever negotiator because they're so rigid. So if you force them, for example, um, by way of showing that their audit um, is an, an interpretive representation, of data and you have your own interpretation, um, then uh, you can begin a negotiation with some leverage uh, and if that doesn't work well you can ask to have them perform that um, audit again a second time. So you have I believe it's 60 days to respond, um, it might be 90, I can't remember. Um, and then they have to re-perform an audit, which, you know, in the end is a little bit costly for them. So um, that creates even more leverage. Uh, it can be a good thing and it can be a terrible thing. Um, typically when the client does it themselves, it doesn't turn out well for them um, because they don't do this frequently enough, so they don't know they where they can go. They don't have a map. Uh, they don't do it for a living right. But I do think that these are... Um, I see this, this is, becomes part of my negotiation, of course, because I want to put terms into the contract. Um, unlike other vendors, Oracle doesn't put in a margin of error that is reasonable. Um, and a lot is left to um, you know, ancillary documents that don't exist in so the without, contract um, itself. Without encroaching on your um, secret source, or uh, intellectual property, I, I guess there's a case of lifting previous terms from other customers and putting them into your new customers and, and encouraging those. Is that how it works? Uh, it is, uh, I don't know if I lift terms, but you know, I go from what I've negotiated previously. So it's, yep. you know, knowledge that's in my head, Martin. But yes, you, you know, I've, I've been around long enough in business for 20 years and 
uh, in corporate America for 15, so I'm dating myself, but it is what it is, right? Uh, but uh, yes, the, after so many years of sitting across the table, you have a, you know a measurement of where you can go, um, and it isn't uh, it isn't something really that an end user can do. They don't see these agreements frequently enough. Uh, it's at least three years between negotiations, uh, if not more. And oftentimes, if a if a unique licensing um, scenario or model has been created for a customer, um, and that license was for ten years, there have been so many changes in management uh, that nobody remembers really what was negotiated. Nobody holds on to ordering documents, which are critical, and so. The audit outcome depends on uh, those documents and you know the facts around the deal that was cut at the time it was cut. And so um, digging through the history, through the paperwork, and finding all those pieces of evidence, um, that doesn't take an expert, but it takes an expert to tell a sure. customer and, where to look for them. And, and Craig, uh, if, I, if I could come to you, I mean, what's your view on these recommendations? Are they also child's play to you? And, and at what point, if I could ask you, at what point do we, do we need to build these things in, uh, you know, in an ideal world? Well, I think, you know, it would be great if Oracle did all this. I also think they're never going to do all this. Yeah. It, it is against their nature. Um, there, there's no reason for them to do it. They have a very successful business and a model that generates a lot of money and locks in clients. Um, so the alternatives in implementing some of these, you know, if, if I'm at Oracle and I was there many years, I would be asking myself, will this help me generate more money? And, and show me on a spreadsheet how making this change in my contract will generate more revenue for the company. Uh, so what we try to do is, uh, you know, the way it's done today, the way audits are performed today, the way contracts are drafted today, um, and Anya spoke about this, you know, there are, there are things that aren't even in the contract. There are reference policies and, and all those sorts of things. Uh, it's, it's, we call it the gray zone. It's, it's very ambiguous. And that, that presents a lot of risk to a client when things are that gray. On the flip side, it prevents a lot of opportunity for a client because if it's gray for the client, it's gray for Oracle. So understanding where it's gray and where it's ambiguous and where you could take advantage of that through the audit process or the contract negotiation process or the renewal process is you know really what we help clients do so uh, whether it's an audit or some type of declaration or some type of true up that you have with Oracle if you have enterprise agreements or things like that or even these new pool of funds contracts that, that Oracle has uh, out is you know how do you use what's in the contract and use what's not in the contract to your advantage uh, so as was mentioned before you can tie up Oracle in knots and uh, I'll tell you the, the the change that needs to happen for me is right. not with Oracle right. but with the customers uh, if cust customers understanding you know it's like uh, the Wizard of Oz I didn't realize <laughs> I had all this power all the time you know I, I can go you know, a lot of what we do is educating the customers on where they can push, and, and often it's them making the decision, okay, I don't want to push this hard, I do want to push this hard. Now, what are your goals, Mr. or Mrs. Client, that you, that, that you need to pursue here? So, um, you know, we work in the reality of today and, and the ambiguity and, and um, 
I don't spend much time trying to change Oracle, although I will say one more thing. Some of the things that we're all doing on this phone are, and our customers are doing are having an impact because Oracle's making changes to their contracts and it's not changes that will make it easier for customers to be in compliance, but it are changes that are making it um, more definitive on what you need to give Oracle when they audit you or when your ULA expires or what happens in a pool of funds agreement or things like that. So I think what you're looking to do with these changes, Oracle's actually going in the opposite direction. They're, they're not moving in this yeah. direction. They're going, they're, they're doubling down on, you know, what, what they're doing today. So that's, that's, so that's to my answer your question directly seen. though. So you said, if I'm at Oracle, why should I bother doing any of this stuff? How, what, how much more money is it going to make me? My stance on that is that will Oracle become a hundred percent cloud company? No, but a lot of growth for them could come from the cloud and having a, uh, a, a poor, um, mistrustful relationship and really bad communication for a vendor. That doesn't. I'm not going to rush to go and put my computing power in that cloud if that vendor's not communicating with you and and, and suggest lock in. So uh, that's why I think there's an opportunity for them to change because if they're and this might might be blindly naive, Craig, but um, if there's an opportunity for them to improve their image and improve their trading relationship, then they're more likely to get more cloud customers. I think that that's that's a compelling reason, is it not? That's a great point. That's that's a great point, and we've seen Oracle sort of dangle cloud offers in front of their clients. Uh, you know, if you do this, then we'll give you this cloud offering. But I always I always tell the client, you know, make sure you read those agreements uh, because uh, we've seen we've heard a lot of hey, we can reduce our support if we do this other thing. And I, I always read them. I'm like, well, here here's the gotcha, or here's the by the way of that reducing support because ultimately, when you look at what customers, ultimately Oracle is a support renewal company. The 91% margins on a whatever billion dollar business comes through support renewal. Everything they do is geared towards protecting that. Uh, I know we focus on license, but from a spend perspective, that big check a customer writes every year is about maintenance. And what we see is, how can I reduce that, Craig? You know, I'm going through this transition. How can I reduce that? So to your point, uh, the cloud is disruptive to an on-premise vendor like Oracle. So they are making big strides. I think, you know, the earnings they just announced talked about, you know, however many one billion they, they made in the cloud so they are making moves they are we are seeing offers out to clients to move in that direction but to your point clients are very hesitant to do that they're like why would I do this why would I even go further with Oracle so that's a that's a great point in terms of you know maybe that's sort of the avenue that will push Oracle they've got this disruptive force out there um, but still it's Oracle database when you've got database embedded in your organization, and and if, even if you wanted to move it to a cloud that's not Oracle, you still need Oracle database licensing. You know, yeah. take your own or buy it through the cloud. Um, I think I think that'll be more for new clients, you know, new customers, expansions, things like that. Not that multi-billion-dollar support stream that they have locked in. You know, they're they're not eager to change that. And I wouldn't be either. You know, this, this is not a knock on Oracle. If, if I had a fifteen billion dollar ninety percent revenue stream coming in. Yeah. Let's I'd want just to ride that, that pony till it, till it <laughs> yeah. fades away. So, um, if I could come to you, uh, Doug. So you're you're at the um, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you're at the more of the data collection and and collecting the intelligence for for clients to actually do negotiations in the first place. And I guess I guess John, John, you're in the same position. Um, and Craig mentioned the fact that there's this ever end ever ending acquisition trail for. Um, 
of, of Oracle's acquisitions in the past in terms of products. How do you how do you keep up with all of that stuff? And and are you seeing any trends in what people are actually looking for in terms of their data? Uh, yeah, most definitely. I think that uh, the trend that we're seeing, and and I think that will probably be articulated during the the sessions in January is the shift towards getting control of the data center costs and assets. And what we've typically seen from our uh, our customers and specifically around Oracle is there are two types of projects that, that, that we get involved in. One is sort of the reactionary response to an audit where the customer just wants to get the data get it analyzed and go through and do the negotiations. The second one is more strategic where there's other uh, data center um, initiatives that are occurring in terms of server consolidation, virtualization, overloading, those types of things. It could be a merger and an acquisition that's forcing the organization to consolidate <clears throat> or they're starting to investigate cloud architectures. And what we've done is broken it up into three segments. The first thing you need to do is get a, a very discrete discovery uh, capability that's accurate and non-refutable. And, and that means how do you go out and discover, and in, we use an agentless approach to go out and, and look at your assets, hardware, software, all the different operating systems, Unix, Linux, Windows, all the different virtualization technologies, VMware, Hyper-V, LPARs, all the clustering. So really getting a good grounding and a foundation of accurate data. The next step is how do we take that data and incorporate it or integrate it into configuration management, asset management, license management tools or operations, and then finally the optimization. Once we sort of get this, how do we then go out and, and, and negotiate the best offering uh, that we can with, with our vendors and our suppliers as well as typically try and reduce the costs. Um, and, and so there's a whole lot of elements, processes, and people that are involved in all that and typically uh, by segmenting into those three stages I think at least there is a, a plan that can be put in place. If I fall in the strategic camp, so I'm not just doing a one-off tactical thing responding to something, and I want to do this on an ongoing proactive basis. How often do I track my Oracle state? Is six months a good thing? Uh, we do it. It's uh, typically the scanning windows are usually uh, every but week. But is it really is it really um, that dynamic? I don't we, I don't doubt your ability to do that. But do you actually the, need that? Is it really that dynamic in in large environments? Well, I think that. And, and, and this is a big topic of conversation with IT operations folks is if we're going to leverage blades and all these multi-core processors, uh, network storage, and, and we're going to virtualize our server assets and then we're going to manage what gets executed in those virtual, virtualized servers, those clients are going to move. So when when clients come in and they start looking at the licensing rules about movement of virtual assets, it's very dynamic. And depending on the time of day, the day of the month, uh, it, it, it can differ. So 
moving from, you know, CMDBs usually focused on a, a physical asset, is it on, is it off, is it at rest? How do you then integrate that into the asset management component tree in terms of applying the financials? And then what are the processes that need to be modernized uh, to take advantage of these uh, new infrastructure technologies that are causing a lot of the discussions in terms of the license contract, the negotiations, and, and how we monitor and maintain it. Um, and, and I'll tell you right now, most of the software vendors are betting that customers don't have a hand, uh, a handle on how those assets are deployed. So their best negotiating position is you know, sign on the dotted line and go away. Uh, we know it's costing us more, but at a certain point, uh, the CIO or the, you know, the executives are going to say, "Hey, we're we're spending way too much money here. We yeah. need to we need to reduce our costs." John, if I could ask the same of you, um, I'd be interested in your perspective on that in terms of what the frequency and uh, also perhaps who's actually doing the data collection. Is it partners doing it on behalf of customers and specialists, or is it the customers and customers themselves? Well, so I agree uh, with what Doug said that, uh, you know, with the, when you're getting into the virtual environment and, of course, once you get into a, a cloud scenario, that's, you know, always virtualized, a virtualized environment too. Th things can be very dynamic. And so it does require you to probably have, you know, a higher frequency of, of data collection. Um, and so, you know, and again, going back to something that I think Craig said earlier, you know, there's a lot that can be done, you know, on the, on the customer side regardless of, of Oracle policies and, and so forth, uh, to improve uh, their processes. Again, something that, that uh, Doug touched on too. You know, improving your processes around managing your software assets and, and, and utilizing technologies to help you, you know, automate some of those processes. So, so yeah, the frequency, you know, has to go up because of uh, the dynamic nature of the virtual environment, uh, being able to understand you know, what virtual machines are running your Oracle applications and, wh and where are they, you know, correlating that back to your host machines and uh, making sure that you understand, you know, what, you know, what uh, your license model looks like, you know, if it's a processor-based model and, you know, you're, you're moving things around, then you could have, you know, you know different uh, cost requirements, liabilities, if you will, to, uh, to managing those Oracle licenses. Uh, as to who's doing it, um, you know, I guess that depends. Uh, you know, in, in our case, you know, with our customers, it, it could be, you know, the, the, the customer themselves that's monitoring this through, through our technology, uh, collecting the data and analyzing, you know, the, the information, you know, through our, through our tools. Or it could be through, you know, maybe a managed service, right? So there's, you know, a number of partners that we work with that provide managed services around, uh, you know, our technology to, to manage uh, licensing for, for the client. Thank so um, I've been looking at the um, financial results of Oracle from, from late last year, and I, I, won't, I won't dig into them now. I'll just, I'll just attach them to the show notes for anyone that's interested. But um, I don't think they were particularly miraculous. There certainly wasn't huge growth in... Um, in new license revenue, which goes back to your point, Craig, in terms of it, you know, just let's drag out the maintenance contracts for as long as we can. And, and they showed um, that the growth was really in the, um, the cloud, their cloud offering. 
but that still only represented 5% of their revenue. So it's a tiny little proportion compared to some of their cloud-based rivals. So, so I've, I imagine that they're going to come to their customers this year with a lot of cloud offerings and cloud contracts and lots of carrots and persuasion to, to move to cloud-based offerings. Um, what can we do? What, if I could come to you first, Anya or Craig, what, what do you think? What's the, um, the approach we should take in terms of, a, um, in terms of looking at a cloud, Oracle Cloud as an alternative? Uh, the first, in any cloud offering from any vendor, there's always going to be a third party involved. Uh, and that in the old, uh, old world lingo is the host company. I don't know that Oracle is going to be hosting everywhere on their own. I don't know how many server farms they have. I don't know how big they are. But there will always be third parties. And so, of course, you get into um, the data that's in the cloud, you know, do you have a private cloud? How secure is your data? How reliable is the hosting party uh, if it's not Oracle? Uh, and, and then in Europe in particular, you have issues about where the data is kept um, and how it's moved around because there are restrictions so, where it's sorry, sorry to interrupt, but they, um, therein lies an opportunity, doesn't it? Because if, if somebody else is hosting that Oracle for you, can't you sidestep the contracts and licensing stuff to them and, and sub subcontract it to them? Um, I haven't seen that many um, uh, instances like that. Uh, typically in, in the Microsoft world, um, Microsoft uh, you know, is pushing their own um, cloud uh, version of their, of their software. There's the same pushback from um, my clients because I see them go through these things with uh, IBM, with uh, Microsoft, now Oracle. Um, Oracle's a little bit late to the game. I don't know necessarily um, what the pushbacks will be, but if, I, if, if you can judge by what their contracts look like today and, and just superimpose the word cloud license on that, then you will be in a very bad position with Oracle because Oracle's licensing terms are never contained in any contract. They're always in a, 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 on a URL somewhere. If it's in a URL, it's not in the contract. It doesn't matter if the contract points to it um, because of the way Oracle puts it out, uh, uh, out there. Um, so if they continue to do the same thing, you, I don't know who you're going to chase first. Um, Oracle... Uh, to interpret uh, licensing terms that aren't part of the contract, the hosting uh, portion of the contract that will probably be written like every other part of an Oracle agreement, vague, um, not focused on um, roles and responsibilities, uh, and shifting all of the um, burden onto the licensing. This is, this is very, very typical of Oracle, and it will continue most likely um, if you guys have, you know, copies of these um, agreements, I would love to see them. I haven't been fortunate enough um, because I focus on more than one vendor. So it would be new to me to see how Oracle negotiates uh, in the cloud. It, I don't think it will be any different than they negotiate yeah. anything uh, anyway. But the issue to remember with them is that their contracts don't contain the terms that you need for use, for your use rights, 
and for what you can and can't do, for example, with partitioning. Um, if you take a look at every single one of those URL documents, there's a reason there's exculpatory language in those documents, and people who aren't used to reading these things uh, get you know, lulled into a false sense that there are terms around there and we see them. Uh, like every other vendor, the end user licensee never gets to approve um, use terms. Uh, they don't even get to approve what is being sent to them uh, under a purchase order. Oracle just sends everything. Are they going to do the same thing with cloud computing so that end users looking at something and saying, oh, I'd like that uh, for my uh, you know, business head. Yeah, we need this. I mean, is it going to be more out of control than it currently is? I don't know. Probably not, because it's not in control now, even in, in standard perpetual licenses. So I think it's going to be a mess, and I think that Oracle will be challenged. Craig, anything to add to that? Yeah, Martin, sorry. It's James Gabriel. I joined a little late um, from Snow Software, but I, I had something to add to uh, Anya's comments there. Um, so before coming to Snow, I was in sales management for many years at Oracle, and uh, this came up actually quite often. And I think it gets back to Doug, John, and, and Craig's points from before. Um, visibility is incredibly important because the default responsibility is always going to be on the customer. And I think Anya's comments as well, the, the language in the contracts are so arbitrary in nature and pointing to URLs that can be moving targets, hosted environments, and really in all hosted environments in general, it's, it's still going to be the customer's responsibility. So for example, if you were to have a hosted platform on Oracle's former hosted environment and not their new current cloud environment, but their hosted platform, and you asked the Oracle engineers there to increase your performance or your compute power, those engineers would not give you any indication that doing so may violate your licensing. So there was a lot of customers that got outside of their licensing structure because they were kind of relying on Oracle to keep them in compliance when really the contract responsibility between them and the Oracle platform was just to give them the SLAs that they expected. So it's always going to fall back to the customer um, to make sure that they're not only in compliance, but they understand their actual restrictions of each platform that they're setting up. Um, it is um, in, in law, uh, and this is copyright law, which is essentially uh, universal, um, with major exceptions in countries where it's just not you know, regarded at all. But in most Western business cultures, um, copyright law is copyright law. So um, it is incumbent on the holder of the copyright or the owner of the software to ensure that its product is um, used in accordance with specific terms and conditions. If the owner of the software makes use and compliance with copyright law unreasonable, and the word unreasonable is in law unreasonable, not in just regular English unreasonable. If it's unreasonable to comply with something, then you set you have a challenge that you, and you're standing on solid ground with that challenge. So when a vendor tries to be clever and constructs a licensing schema that depends on 
very precise understanding of a specific um, vendor's business and their methodologies. And an ordinary person couldn't reasonably comply with the demands that a vendor makes. And those demands are thrown out. And the, and the owner of the IP um, puts himself in a position where his ownership of the IP is in jeopardy. It's incumbent on the owner of the IP to ensure that it is protected, that it isn't misused, and if it can easily be misused because of incomprehensible licensing terms, then it, the role is not, it doesn't fall on the licensee shoulders. It falls on the licensor's shoulders to clarify. How, how, do you, how, do you clar how do you enforce that then? Uh, well, a lot of people have to go to court, and this is the problem with corporate end users. Um, if, this, if we were talking about um, the general public, you know, the retail marketplace, that would be one thing. There are a lot of laws that protect the um, private consumer. There are no such laws or equivalent laws to protect the corporate consumer because it's understood by the courts that a corporate consumer has the wherewithal to and investigate what it is they're getting into. That gets really sticky with the craziness of uh, licensing um, models that vendors have created for themselves. It's just, it, it, you know, it's a, it's a rat's nest. Uh, and even the vendors themselves are getting tangled in their own nests. You can't get a salesperson that can explain to you why a particular uh, platform needs all of the components you know, there in order to accomplish X. They, they can't do it. They need engineers to come into the sales call. They can't address the licensing issues. They look at me like I'm a bug from another planet when I say to them, um, you know, that document out there on this URL address that you have in the contract is not a valid contract element. So is, is there any uh, examples of that um, that can set precedent that we can highlight? I argued the case not in a court of law, but on the, the steps of a court. Um, and uh, is, this was for a company in the UK uh, that had already taken on Queen's Council. Uh, and for us Americans, that means they were serious about going to court um, and suing. Um, they were both suing each other, I guess, but more so the licensee was suing uh, Oracle. Um, and it was all over um, an original license that was a license that was created uniquely for the client, and the client was a um, a large retailer. And um, the with the passing of time, it was a ten-year license agreement. With the passing of time, um, the you know uh, the the self-checkout became very popular, and so. Oracle was claiming you're violating these your licensing rights uh, and limitations by um, scanning these products because every scan is a is a you know accessing a database and so everybody got all uh, you know involved and uh, you know the demand was for you know um, um, internet facing database licenses which were very very expensive and so. This became a moot point when I pointed out that the scanner is just a dumb device. You know, it's loaded up with the catalog for the day, 
and it scans and collects all of its data and at night it batches it back to the data. So the customer themselves are not touching the database whatsoever at any point in time. Well, so that argument got thrown out and then we started looking at you know what it was, the multiplexing, the partitioning, all of the things that people, that, their eyes glaze over when Oracle starts talking. And you know, I pointed out, well, where where is this language in your contract? Because it's not in here. Oh no, it's not this URL. You know, here's the URL address. I go there, and you know, at the bottom of the page, the footnote says um, that this is for educational purposes only. It may not be used to uh, interpret or construct or become a part of any contract with Oracle. So there you have it. That is their Achilles heel. It's not part of the contract, and it can't be enforced as part of the contract. And, well, I got what I wanted for my client. My client was very happy, and I've repeated that with Oracle at least uh, in last year, at least 15 times, Martin. And it had no effect on Oracle. You would think that after 15 times, and I cost them, I don't know how many millions of tens, if not hundreds of millions of uh, British pounds sterling, that they would possibly look into removing that footnote or actually putting that language into the contract, but they don't. And, and Craig, I love your well. idea of the fact that this is an opportunity for customers rather than for Oracle. So in an ideal world, and forgetting that you make a living from helping customers do this, what, what's, the, um, what, what's the greatest opportunity for customers? If you had two customers, two Oracle customers in the room, What's the biggest opportunity for them to collaborate to, to help help each other? Well, you know, and it goes back to your question before of with with cloud offerings, what should customers do? Is Oracle putting out um, offers now? Are they putting out carrots? And and the answer to all that is yes. They're trying to uh, really accentuate their, uh, or it appears from this side of the table that they're trying to really push their cloud offerings and and bump up that number. You know that's what the market looks for. Market's all about cloud now, so they need to have a good cloud number. <clears throat> the best thing customers can do is be educated as to what's as was just said. What is in their contracts? What is not in their contracts? What are they obligated to do? I mean, as as a licensee of software, you need to maintain compliance. You know, all of our customers want to be in compliance, but they don't know how to do it, or they didn't understand Oracle's rules or Oracle's policies. So having a good understanding, a good education on Oracle licensing and Oracle policies, and again, it is not black and white. I have seen Oracle come into uh, one situation and come up with one number because they put one methodology around their audit. I've seen them go into a very similar situation and come with a very different number because Oracle itself has interpreted whatever rules or policies they have in a very different way. Uh, I've also seen it where if you have an unlimited deal from Oracle, they're going to count one way. If you're not in an unlimited deal, they might use a different methodology. So really understanding the gray zone, understanding where you can push the envelope, understanding you know what your goals are as a company. So your, your question before was, you know, what should companies do when, when evaluating an Oracle Cloud offering and how to get the best deal, let's say, is make sure that you know you're in compliance so that when you decide to go to an Oracle Cloud offering, 
it's because it was the best offering. It was the best cloud offering. It was technically the best service, or it was the cheapest. Not because you're being audited, and oh, by the way, if you buy this cloud offering, this audit goes away. Martin, I think I might be able to add some color to that Please as do. well, um, if, if I may. Thank you. Um, and I really appreciate what Anya said, and I think it's really important to use, um, you know, I was going to give recommendations to a customer these days, to use, as Craig was saying, uh, as much information as, po as possible, right? The old adage, knowledge is power. That, along with visibility, um, gives you the insight to make the right decisions. If we look at just kind of the really common example of unlimited agreements, well, the majority of customers, I did this personally myself at Oracle, are always going to extend their unlimited agreements. And the primary reason they do this is because the growth that they anticipated experiencing didn't quite happen in the time frame that they thought. And they didn't have the visibility of where they were going, how many deployments of Oracle they had, where those deployments were, and what that equated to in terms of Oracle licensing. So because there was this uncertainty, much like in an audit scenario, these customers made a decision to spend untold millions of extra dollars because they were unsure if they got enough value from the initial contract. That's always going to be uh, a serious or grave mistake when you're trying to get the most out of every IT spend. The, the theory of this is all about how we can get clearer on Oracle licensing and, and how we can push Oracle as a customer base as a community to make sure that they have simplified licensing. And what Anya was saying about past contracts is true. There are some loopholes that you can take advantage of to make sure that you don't get kind of rolled over um, in these negotiations. But I think going forward, it's utilizing things that are dynamic in nature to your, your benefit, i.e. the VMware policy for Oracle can have a negative, negative effect for folks that are trying to in compliance and they do not have some sort of unlimited agreement. However, if you do have an unlimited agreement, the VMware policy and the fact that they're counting all of the databases inside a cluster can actually be a, a huge net benefit because it's easier to deploy a large amount of databases to take advantage of in the future. Um, you know, the best thing Oracle customers can do when it comes to the cloud is to make sure if they're going to the Oracle cloud that they're doing it for the right reasons because it's the best technical solution for them because they're getting the best price for whatever reason, not because they're out of compliance with another, with another issue. And, you know, if you buy some Oracle cloud services, yeah. we'll make this issue go away. You know, we've seen that a lot. So that, that would be my advice to clients is to be educated as to their policies and really understand and optimize. Take advantage. The fact that there's a document that's not in the contract with a footnote that says it's not part of the contract, that is a fantastic opportunity for a client. Yeah. And maximize uh, Almost that. like... Um... Uh, the three-year Microsoft Enterprise Agreement, isn't it? We'll, we'll forget about that oversight, and it, as long as you sign up for the next three years, and everything's every, every, everybody's happy. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Perfect. Yes. Yes. So um, I'm conscious of time. So is um, is there anything we need to cover before we wrap up? Any, any other points people want to add? Yes, I have one point that I'd like to add. Um, even if something is not in a contract, not part of a contract. Uh, it can be made part of a contract. Where do you go from there? 
let's go to the um, virtual, the VM environment and counting, the endless counting that takes place. There is something, uh, I mentioned it before in law, that calls for what is reasonable on the part of a licensee, what is reasonable expectation. And um, the way uh, Oracle currently um, dictates how the VM environment should be managed and licensed is not reasonable. So you have to ask yourself, if I have to take extraordinary measures, not I'm not talking about a lazy person uh, versus extraordinary measures. I'm talking about diligent people, a responsible organization. What is an unreasonable effort? And you have to get that definition on paper from Oracle before you uh, finish your negotiation because that's what it's going to come down to. It's very strange that in the world of law that software is taken aside and made separate from copyright law. And what judges fall to, our arbitrators fall to, is what is common, what is standard in the industry. So reasonableness becomes a very important argument because what's reasonable for Oracle is not reasonable for the majority of other vendors out there yeah. to the degree that and they I've go. I've heard as well, and this is not quantified or verified, but um, there's not anyone that's actually been... If, you, if you're pulled up for use of Oracle on VMware, nobody's actually been taken to court on it because it isn't reasonable. No, because... Exactly. Exactly. A reasonableness uh, becomes, you know, everyone says... Well, you know, that's such a nebulous term, reasonable. Well, you know, the licensing conditions and terms that um, Oracle has put in front of you as a licensee are also interpretive. It can be, they can be read any number of ways. So, uh, you know, reasonableness becomes very important, and I think it should become, uh, for people who do this for a living, you know, whether they're in an organization and see this once every three years is irrelevant. They're negotiating other agreements with other vendors. And so they can compare uh, in their own little mini world what's reasonable with this vendor. You can't just say this vendor is easy, that vendor's hard. Those are those are silly words that don't mean anything. This vendor is reasonable. I give them a reason why I can't do something, and they come back with a solution to help me. This is not something you'll ever get from Oracle. Yeah, you know this is this is Doug. I I would I would tend to agree that it rarely will they go to court, but. I think what we what we're seeing is that there's either a zero sum. I'm going to pay nothing in terms of the, the contract in terms of penalties or or differences, and then there's the delta of well, if we're running in a virtual environment under VMware, and the penalty or the true up could be 10 million or 20 million, Oracle's going to have some number in mind that they're going to negotiate to between zero and whatever that upper limit is and, and what we're finding is those customers that don't have a good grasp of their inventory aren't in a great negotiating position because typically Oracle will have the right to audit and they'll say okay we'll come in and we'll help you get clarity and disrupt your IT operations and, and so IT groups don't want that to happen either um, so I, I think the message that we're seeing is most of these organizations are trying to get more proactive and get their arms around this because they can't continue to do this because there are other vendors that are knocking on the door. 
I wanted to add, sort of following on to that, you know, and going back to what you asked Craig about what's, what are the key things that you should do if you're considering moving to the cloud with Oracle is is understanding your current license position and understanding your current, you know, environment. Because uh, first of all, you know, what, what we find is that a lot of organizations don't know what, you know, their license position is or what's installed in their environment from, from, from Oracle. And, uh, you know, so that's, you know, obviously a, a problem that they have to address before they start thinking about moving to the cloud. But the, the second part of it is that I think Oracle is kind of following this sort of the same um, process that SAP is doing where they're, they're providing incentives to move to the cloud based on you know, your, your current licensing so that you, know, you can have trade-in credits and things like that that uh, potentially allow you to take something that you're not using today and, you know, Use that as a credit to an Oracle Cloud offering, for example. So understanding what you know what your license position is and what you have today is is very important to to achieving that. Also, um, people have to think about um, what happens when I step away from um, this cloud uh, because I didn't like it or changes were forced on me too rapidly or whatever. Um, you just don't want to be uh, in the cloud with Oracle anymore. Um, what do you have when you go back to what are you going back to so that has to be identified and clarified in Microsoft had a hard time uh, in that uh, area and acquiesced over a number of years and began recognizing the original uh, paid-for licenses potential licenses that were in existence and the fact that their client had been paying in essence a uh, software assurance, which is the term in the Microsoft world, and for so many years when they were in the cloud, so some of that should be applied so that they don't end up with software that's two years old. Uh, and uh, that was a, a very difficult uh, concept for Microsoft to grasp originally. But I believe that you know going forward we should do that. We should you know as a group um, insist that everybody. Put that into their cloud agreements. It's almost like a uh, a prenup, isn't it? When you're when you're signing a new uh, marriage, you know, love is blind. Absolutely. Nothing's going to go wrong. We've got a great new deal, uh, and the worst the worst thing to think about is a prenup. Mm -hmm. But it, you almost think about what is the exit strategy before I even sign it, and it's probably a bit dull for people that are going to getting excited about the technology to think about that. But that's the reality, isn't it? You've got to think about the exit. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, divorced before marriage. So thank you very much for your time. Um, I very much enjoyed that and look forward to meeting you all and discussing this further on the 29th of January in New York at Baruch College. Um, and if you'd like to attend and join us at that event, please look at the show notes for this at the ITEM Review, which is itsmanagement.net, and you can find out more about this free event.